Our Father, it seems as though our world is getting increasingly dark. We walk in the light because we know you through your Son, the Lord Jesus. We once were in darkness, but because of your work in our hearts to draw us to Christ, we have passed from darkness into light. But as we observe what is going on around us, not only in our nation, but in the world, the darkness is increasing. How grateful we are that uh, you have never been in the dark about anything. There are times when personally we're in the dark. We're not sure. We're confused. Even as believers, uh, the, the next step is not clear to us at times. How grateful we are that Psalm 139 says that darkness and light are alike to thee. Therefore, you've never been in the dark. You are light. When we call upon you, you give us light. This is why we're here doing Bible study. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. When we're not sure, we open our Bibles and we ask for wisdom. And you said, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally and without reproach. We thank you, Lord, for that promise. We, we thank you that it's a promise that you answer when we call upon you and we're unsure. You promise to give us wisdom. Uh, thank you for the wisdom that's in your book. Uh, your scriptures tell us that in an abundance of counselors, there is victory. Uh, thank you that we don't walk this Christian path by ourselves, but we have friends. We, we, we know others who walk with you and we respect their walk, and oftentimes their input can bring wisdom into our lives. Uh, it, it is a dark world. But we thank you that you're in charge of this world. We thank you that the events that we see un, um, that are being unveiled every day, where there seems to be so, so much more corruption, so much more confusion, so much more rebellion, so much more insanity, you oversee it all and you're working your plan. And as there is this plan for the ages, there is a plan for each of us, for each of us, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope and wait for his loving kindness. Uh, we are not just a number to you. We are not just a mass of individuals, but you know about us. You understand us. You understand our thought from afar. So tonight, Lord, whatever it is that is pressing in on our uh, hearts, on our minds, that is bringing aggravation, frustration, worry, anxiety, we cast all of our care upon you because you care for us. You care for us more than we can imagine, more than we can realize. What a staggering thing. How much mercy have we received from you in our lifetimes? Well, the mercy is not over with. It just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. It's new every morning. Each man here has needs. Supply those needs, Lord, at the right time. We'll trust you for the timing. Thank you for daily provision, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, financially, that gets us through. Your mercies are new every morning. And because your mercies are there, and because we pray in the name of Christ, we're not in the dark. We're walking in the light, and for that we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're continuing in Philippians. We're calling this series Crisis in Contentment. Actually, we're calling it Contentment in Crisis. As soon as I said that, it didn't seem right to me. It just, 
Something seemed a little off. Warren Wearsby um, has a great quote, a great line. He says, life is not a series of accidents. It's a series of appointments. But there are sometimes, it seems like life is a series of accidents, a series of missteps. Uh, a lot of time we, we live with regret. We look back over our lives, and uh, every man has regret. Every woman has regret. I, I, I wish I hadn't have done that. I wish I hadn't have said that. I shouldn't have made that decision. I, a lot of regret, a lot of missteps. Man, I wish I had another chance at that. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones did a tremendous book called Spiritual Depression. And he was this, this great pastor who died in 1981. He was at Westminster Chapel in London. I quote from him all the time. If, you, if you're here, you, you know that I do. Uh, he was a medical doctor before he w went into the, the pastorate. Uh, quite a medical doctor. Actually was uh, uh, such, such a, a brilliant young doctor. He was mentored by Lord Horder, who was, as I recall, uh, physician to four prime ministers of England and the Queen of England. And, and was really handpicked by Horder to be his protege and to succeed him. But at the age of 27, uh, he went into the ministry and became a physician of the soul. Uh, went to a little coal mining town in Wales. And, and they wrote about it in the London papers. I couldn't believe this guy was walking away from this career. And I think was there 14, 15 years, and then came to uh, Westminster Chapel uh, under G. Campbell Morgan. Uh, anyway, just kind of a fascinating history. But one morning, Lloyd-Jones was shaving, and this outline of sermons came to him on spiritual depression and the different reasons and the different uh, ways that Satan depresses Christians and causes them to lose hope. Uh, I've, I've read that book scores of times, scores of times. One of the things, he has a chapter in there called Vain Regrets, Vain Regrets. I was on the phone recently with a gentleman I've not met, but a friend put us in touch, and he was just having some just tremendous depression, not characteristic of him, waking up in the middle of the night, sobbing. And as we talked um, for a while, started asking him some questions, and he'd been to a doctor and, you know, physically was checked out and all of this. It appeared not to be a physical issue, more of an emotional heart-soul issue. Started asking some questions, and... Uh, you know where we landed? Vain regrets. Vain regrets. Because when you have regrets over past months, past years, past chunks of your life, uh, you can't get it back. And you wish that you could. But the years which the locusts have eaten, I will restore. <laughs> See, there's the gospel. Uh, there's the antidote. There's the truth. Uh, we all have things we wish we could back, go back and, and change and undo and get back. Lloyd-Jones, in that chapter on vain regrets, has a great line. He's quoting that passage out of, is it Joel 2? The years which the locusts have eaten, I will restore. He makes the statement, and, and, and you know, we're, we're kind of... Uh, Hey, we're not agricultural guys. I mean, maybe a few of us are, but most of us aren't. Uh, I'm digressing here. Uh, Little House on the Prairie, Laura Ingalls Wilder. Uh, my wife Mary, with my daughter, as I recall, they read through the books. And her father, uh, they had moved, I think, from Illinois somewhere. He was going to farm. Uh, Right at harvest time, here come the locusts. Wiped him out. Next year, we'll get it back. 
Here come the locusts, same thing. Next year, three, four, maybe five years. I can't remember the details, but that was it. He was done. Devastating what the locusts do. Lloyd-Jones said that with the Lord, you need to understand this. The locusts can come and take a harvest. God has his ways. God has his ways. God can give you 10 years in one year. And he can do it. And there are guys in here, and you've experienced it. And I'm not just talking financially, although he can do that too. Relationally, he can, he can heal relationships that have been broken for years and 10 years, God can make that up because he's God. This is the power of God. This is the wonder of God. This is the magnificence of God. This is the gospel. In, in Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. There is power in the gospel. Uh, in Philippians 1, when we get to verse 12, Paul is going to talk about the gospel. And th this is really kind of a fascinating passage to me. Uh, it, it, it is a passage that, to me, gives tremendous hope. Um, Wearsby's quote that I started off with, life is not a series of accidents, it is a series of appointments. We have all made missteps. We have all made mistakes. We, we have all screwed up. It's our own fault. But, but the grace of God is able to redeem and restore, forgive, make new. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Behold, old things have passed away, all things become new. There's tremendous, there's unbelievable hope when we come to Christ because of the power of the gospel. It's the greatest force on earth. Life is not a series of accidents, it is a series of appointments. In Psalm 37, 23, the Bible says, the steps of a man are ordered by the Lord. The steps of a man are ordered by the Lord. Someone has observed that not only are the steps of a man ordered by the Lord, but the stops of a man are ordered by the Lord. S-T-O-P-S. The steps of a man are ordered by the Lord, and the stops of a man are ordered by the Lord. Um, God has a plan for your life, and he has a plan for my life. Someone asked me last week afterwards, they, they said, how does this sovereignty of God, God is sovereign over all things, yes. How does that work out with the will of man? I said, do you have any other questions? <laughs> They're both in the Bible. I, I had a professor in seminary uh, who answered that by going to the blackboard, and I'm just thinking, some of you young guys, I need to explain. <laughs> I know you're, you're used to whiteboards, but there used to be this thing called a blackboard. And, and, then you would have, and then you would have this stuff called chalk. Yeah. And you might Google that. <laughs> So he went to the, Dr. Cook went to the blackboard, and it was in, we were in the new academic building, and they had, they had a wall that was just blackboard. And what he did was, imagine, you know, imagine a good-sized wall. I mean, we had a room of, could seat 150 people, you know, tiered amphitheater kind of thing. And this whole background was blackboard. He went, and he put a dot. He put a dot. And he said, this is you, and this is your life, and this is your will. And then he walked the, the whole circumference of that blackboard as far as he could reach, outlined it, and he said, this is the will of God. So you got your will, 
a dot, and then you have the will of God. Do we have a will? Absolutely. Do our choices count? Absolutely. Big time. Uh, the book of Proverbs is a father teaching a son about wisdom in different areas of life so that the son can make right decisions because when we're young, we tend to be foolish. But as we come to know the Lord and we get some experience and we get some miles on our tires and we get beat up and we wind up in the ditch by our own bad decisions, we can learn wisdom, you see. Uh, you have a will, I have a will, I'm responsible for my will and choices, you're responsible for your will and your choices, so you have a will. And everybody on the face of the earth has a will. Um, and then there's the will of God. The will of God trumps everything. The will of God is bigger than the will of men. Now, we're accountable for our wills and our choices, but, but God's will is bigger. Uh, God has a plan for the ages, and somehow he incorporates my choices and your choices and everybody, he incorporates that, and it doesn't frustrate his will. Even my bad choices. Of course, the good choices, oh yeah, that gives glory and praise to God. And see, one of the reasons we have such struggle with our past and our regrets is, is that we, the steps of a man are ordered by the Lord. Yeah, but what about my bad steps? What about my missteps? Even those come under the will of God. He knew about those before he made you. Jesus died for those. those are called, that's called sin. Jesus died for those missteps and those sins before we were ever born. He died on the cross for those sins which we were yet to commit. When Jesus went to the cross, he died for, this, for our sins. Past sins, present sins, future sins. He paid for in full on the cross. That's the gospel. That's power. That's the good news. You see? <laughs> Jesus paid it 90%. That's not good news. Jesus paid it all. Okay. So God has a plan and God has a will. Uh, Ephesians 1.11, he works all things after the counsel of his will. All things. He's completely in charge. But I have a will and I have choices. Okay. By the way, your will, it, well, do I really have a choice then? Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Genuinely, you do. The best thing I've ever read on this, and I recommended it last week to the gentleman, was uh, J.I. Packer's book, The Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. How the sovereignty of God works with human responsibility. I'll just leave it at that. By the way, uh, the will of God, the will of God and our wills, uh, the will of God implies certainty without compulsion. Let me say that again. Certainty without compulsion. God has a plan. Uh, you know why I married my wife? Because it was the will of God. And you might want to edit this, Ben. I really didn't want to marry her. I wasn't drawn to her. I wasn't attracted to her. I didn't feel like she really understood me. Um, but I married her because I thought it was the will of God. Now, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know why I married her? Because I wanted to. I mean, I really wanted to marry her. So I did. So when she proposed to me, I immediately <laughs> said, sure, let's do this thing. You know why I married Mary? Because I wanted to. Now, were there other girls that I had dated as you had and other girls that I was interested in over the years? Yeah. I believe in the plan of God. It was his plan for me to marry Mary because, you see, three kids came out of that and three grandkids, which he all purposed that they would exist. I had to marry Mary in order for those three kids to show up and those three grandkids. This is kind of wild stuff. If you think about it too much, it'll, it, you know, your, your brain will explode. I think God wanted me to marry Mary. In fact, I know he did. But you see, was I forced to marry her? No. The will of God implies certainty without compulsion. Isn't that wild? He works through our desires. He works through all kinds of ways. You see, he's not playing with us. We're not robots. 
Okay. Now, the reason I'm kind of going into all this, I want to get to Philippians, is because in Philippians 1.12, Paul, uh, if I'm going to title this, and I am going to title it for the, they always want a title. I'll go ahead and give them a title. I'm going to call this Accidents, Appointments, and Advancement. Uh, I guess, yeah, that's a good, good way. Accidents, Appointments, and Advancements. Let's keep it all plural. Uh, in Philippians 1.12, Paul says this, he says, um, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances, uh, some translations say, instead of circumstances, they say, now I want you to know, brethren, that what has happened to me, which are his circumstances. So let's just blend them. I, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances, what has happened to me, uh, these things have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Uh, now, what are the circumstances? Well, the next line tells us, uh, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ had become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else. Uh, his circumstances, uh, he's in prison in Rome. Okay? And then he goes on. Most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, there it is again, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some to be sure. So you, you got people proclaiming Christ who were intimidated by all the persecution. Uh, 15, some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel, uh, or destined for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me dis distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. See, that's the gospel. In this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Interesting passage. Um, you, you, Paul's in Rome in prison. Paul had always wanted to go to Rome and preach the gospel. If you look up Acts 19.21 or Romans 1.15, you look up in, in both those passages, Paul made his declaration, his desire known, I want to go to Rome and I want to preach the gospel. He went to Rome. And he preached the gospel. But he didn't go to Rome as a preacher. He went to Rome as a prisoner. Why is that? Well, it's because God says in Isaiah 55, 8, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways, and my thoughts above your thoughts. You can, ne you can never figure out how God's going to pull something off. I remember talking with a guy years ago, and he'd gone through a crisis. We were at a men's retreat. He actually had the bottom drop out of his life and really thought he was finished and within a matter of about three days, he was working for a ministry led by a man that he had tremendous admiration for. And even as the bottom fell out, he was astonished to see how God was navigating him in ways which he never, ever imagined. Uh, it was a long process, but I remember him saying to me, if I had have had, a, and he reached a point of desperation in his backyard one night, and, and he literally just called out, what are you doing? I don't get what you're doing. And he said, if I had had a million years to think about it, I never would have figured out how God was going to resolve this situation. But see, God resolves things. Uh, we've said it before. There are three ways that God works in our lives. Number one, God works sovereignly in every detail. But secondly, God works strangely. And thirdly, he works slowly. In other words, God's not going to do it the way we think he ought to do it. Paul's great desire was to preach the gospel in Rome. Well, he got it. But not the way he anticipated. He didn't go in as a preacher. He goes in as a prisoner. But... 
note his perspective here. Um, My circumstances, what has happened to me, has turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. All right, what, what happened to him? The question is, how did he get to Rome? The way that he got to Rome, there, there was a journey. And in the book, and I'm not going to spend much time on this except to say this. this. His circumstances, what happened to him, and, and stop and think about this. You're here tonight at this Bible study. What has happened to you over the last four to five years that got you to this study? Let's just make it personal for each guy in this room. Just think through your life. You're here. Why are you here? What has occurred in your life over the last several years, four years, five years? What was going on five years ago, four years ago in your life? Were you here four or five years ago? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know where you were. What was going on in your life? Well, here you are tonight. Look back over those four or five years and see if we were talking and we were having conversation over coffee. You say, well, let me tell you about my circumstances. Let me tell you what's happened to me. And when you have conversation with guys, they go back over the last three, four, five years. Five years ago, I had a job. I was doing this. And all that. now, I'm, you know, and then I'm out of work suddenly. And then boom, or whatever your story is. This is what Paul, what were his circumstances? What's his story? Acts 21 to Acts 28 tell the story. In Acts 21, he's going to Jerusalem and he wants, he wants to preach. He wants to visit Jerusalem. He is warned about going to Jerusalem. Uh, if you go to Jerusalem, some bad stuff's going to happen. He goes anyway. He says, I'm, I'm not going to be deterred. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. He went to Jerusalem. When he went to Jerusalem, uh, a riot breaks out because they didn't like the gospel that he was preaching. And they knew that he used to be the great persecutor of the church, and now he's the great advocate and defender of the gospel. And that didn't go over real well. So a riot breaks out. They got, they got to send soldiers to protect him. And they're figuring out what to do with him. And then they find out that there is, this is all Acts 21 to 28. Then they find out that there is a conspiracy. Some guys have taken a vow that they're going to kill Paul. And they're, they're not going to take food or drink till they kill him. So they take, what, a couple hundred soldiers, horsemen. And in the dead of night, they take Paul and they run him down the hillside, down to Caesarea, which was sort of the winter palace, and right on the banks of the Mediterranean. Really nice. You can visit it today. See the amphitheater, see the, you know, the hangout and the compounds. Very, very nice place. Uh, he was there for two years. Uh, then he, he, and he appealed to Caesar. They heard him. He was there for two years. Then they sent him off to go to Rome, because he appealed to Caesar. So they send him off, and he's on this ship, and the storm comes up, and there are 200 and something people on, and all of a sudden there's this wind, and there's this storm, and it's just, they're going to sink and all this. And Paul, who is a prisoner, winds up calling the shots, and he tells the guy in charge, you do what I say, and nobody will die, and they did it. Kind of an interesting thing on leadership. Here is the guy with the least power, with the least connections. Uh, he was a prisoner in chains, and before it's all said and done, he's calling the shots and they're doing what he says. Isn't that interesting? Oh, and they, and they shipwrecked, but they did what he said, and nobody died, and they land on Malta. This is Acts 27. And they're there three months, and the, the man who's sort of the head guy on Malta is sick with dysentery and fever, and Paul meets him and prays for him and heals him. Oh, before that, uh, Paul's getting firewood, and a viper, poisonous viper, grabs him. And the natives think he's going to die, and then he doesn't die. What's going on here? How many came to Christ through that? I don't know. But then there are three months, and then he takes off and he goes to Rome, and he's in house arrest. He's in Rome. That's Acts 28. He's in Rome for two years. So when Paul says, my circumstances, this is a four-year deal. Four years of his life. My circumstances... I just went to Jerusalem. I just wanted to share the gospel. And what's happened? And see, <laughs> did he have some start? The steps of a man are ordered by the Lord, right? Well, so are the stops. Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem. It, it, again, I take you back, and I didn't read the verses, but if you look at the verses in uh, Acts 19.21, he wanted to go to Jerusalem. In fact, let's look at that real quick. Uh, and as we're looking at this, 
Think about the plans you've got on your shelf right now. Uh, 1921, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Well, he was going to see it. But you see, there were a few stops along the way. Not only does God order a man's steps, God orders a man's stops. So he winds up in Caesarea for two years. That was a stop. He's pretty much on hold. There are times God puts us on hold. He's not out preaching He's on hold. Then they finally take off. He's going to Rome, and now they're shipwrecked. That's a stop. But see, God's not only in the steps. God's in the stops. Three months on Malta. God does some amazing things in Malta. Then they go to Rome, and he's writing in the midst of the two years of Rome. Now, he doesn't know when he's writing Philippians how it's going to turn out. He's not, he doesn't know if he's going to live or die. Now, what's going to happen is he's going to be released, and then he's going to do some more ministry for several years, and then he's going to wind up again in prison in Rome, and he's going to die then. But he didn't know that. But he wasn't afraid of it, because he gets into that in the next section that we'll deal with next week. The steps of a man are ordered by the Lord, so are the stops. Now, he wanted to go as a preacher, he goes as a prisoner. Watch this, in 112. He said, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress, the greater advancement of the gospel. My circumstances. What are the circumstances? I'm in house arrest in Caesar's household. Okay, now, how? John Bunyan uh, was a tinker. He sold pots and pans. He repaired pots and pans in England. He had been a soldier he was a vile, uh, vile, godless man. Uh, preachers who would preach in the open air, he would throw fruit and vegetables at them and intimidate them. Real rough guy. And then he heard the gospel and was converted. Uh, this tinker, John Bunyan, uh, was a powerful, powerful preacher. And when he would begin to preach in the open air, hundreds and hundreds would come to hear him. People were being converted. The authorities arrested him and put him in jail, and they said, uh, we cannot have you preach. We, we cannot have you be preaching like this, this gospel. Uh, and, they, uh, and, and so they sentenced him, and they said, listen, when you agree to not preach the gospel, we'll let you out. Now, he had a little girl. He had children. He had a wife. They were just barely getting by. He had a little uh, baby girl uh, who was born blind, and she would come and visit her dad. It just ripped his heart out. And it was on him. You can, any, as soon as you say you won't preach the gospel, we'll let you out. But he wouldn't do it. So what did he do? And, and people in England are saying, this is terrible. This guy's the most powerful preacher in England. And he's locked up. Well, he was in there for 12 years. They gave him paper, and they gave him a quill and ink. He wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress is the second best-selling book in the world behind the Bible. Kids today read Pilgrim's Progress. They got Pilgrim's Progress in modern English. Pilgrim's Progress is worth reading. It, it's, it's a story about a guy named Christian who's on a trail, who's on a path. He's following the Lord and what he runs into. It's a phenomenal story. Um, can we say this? This powerful preacher, people didn't get it. Why has the Lord allowed him to be locked up like this? Well, uh, he could have said, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. He would have preached to thousands. His books have been read by millions. God works strangely. My circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. That term progress there, uh, Robert Gromacki says this, uh, the term progress in the Greek literally means to cut toward it is a military term used of engineers who would prepare a road for the advancing army by removing obstructions such as rocks and trees. Uh, have you ever seen the John Wayne movie, Seabees? It's a good movie. Uh, I don't think your wife will like it, but you'll like it. Seabees. <laughs> Seabees. What's the Seabees? Construction Brigade. Started in World War II. Uh, in John Wayne's movie, 
you know, it's the Pacific. They got to take those islands and they got to get a landing strip on there so we can fly our guys in. So who goes in first? The CBs, construction mayors, brigade, uh, uh, battalion. That's what I want to say. Thank you. Yeah, but uh, then the Marines. They got to clear the way for the Marines. They got to get a land. And, but, but see, someone's got to clear the trees. They got to clear the beaches. So those guys would go in and they were tradesmen. They were guys who could, could fix anything. They could make anything. They could. But they also went in with their, with their weapons. You see? Uh, someone has to clear the path so the army can get in. My circumstances, he says, have turned out for the greater progress, for the greater clearing. In other words, these circumstances, which um, to us look like setbacks. Paul's in prison. Doesn't that look like a setback? He ought to be out preaching the word. No, my circumstances where I am in prison, watch this, have turned out, have cleared the way, they've opened the way, they've cleared a path for the greater progress of the gospel. Uh, now, why, why would that be? Well, because now he's going to talk about the Praetorian Guard. The Praetorian Guard, there were 9,000 troops who made up the Praetorian Guard in Rome. They were the cream of the cream of the Roman military. They received double pay, double benefits. Most of the members of the Roman Senate came out of the Praetorian Guard. They were the elite. And for two years, as Paul was under house arrest, in six-hour shifts, four every 24 hours, one of these elite young men would be chained to the Apostle Paul, as Ray Stedman said. I love what Ray said. I heard him teach this years ago. He said, yeah, we make a mistake. Paul wasn't chained to them. They were chained to Paul. Here are these young, virile, strong, pagan young men. And one by one, they began to succumb to the truth of the gospel. Uh, what does he say in Philippians 1.12? Look at this. I want you to know that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. By the way, flip over to the end of Philippians. Philippians um, 4, verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. He's signing off the letter. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Could Paul have walked into Caesar's household and say, hey, I'd like to speak at the chapel service on Tuesday morning at 10 a.m.? Well, Caesar didn't do ch chapel services. Did the Praetorian Guard have a chapel service every Tuesday? No, they didn't do that. So how the heck is Paul going to get in there to preach the gospel? He goes in as a prisoner. Because, see, his ways are not our ways. My circumstances. You, you know what's interesting? What's, what's happening, and he says, he says, my circumstances have turned out. Have turned out. God takes circumstances that we want nothing to do with because we think that they set us back, and God takes those circumstances that are unwelcome, and he turns them out for the greater progress of the gospel and for the greater maturity of those of us who are following Christ who go through the adversity. Does that make sense? We go through, we grow through suffering. We go through adversity. We mature through hardship. So the things we, we don't want anything to do with, it turns out for the greater progress. Joseph was sold into slavery as a young boy. That's a terrible thing. He didn't want that in his life. It, it, his his plans, his hopes, his dreams were absolutely destroyed. But they turned out for the greater progress. When you read that story and you get to Genesis 50, he is now co-ruling with Pharaoh. In fact, actually, in a sense, he was more powerful than Pharaoh because the Bible says he was as a father to Pharaoh. Pharaoh looked to him as a father. So in a sense, he's the most powerful man on the face of the earth. And when his father dies in Genesis 50, his brothers who sold him into slavery are afraid that now he's going to torture them, kill them. 
And what does he say to them? He said, don't fear. I'll take care of you and your little ones. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good in order to bring about this greater result. You see how God works? The adversity that comes in our lives that we don't want, God uses that to deepen us and to mature us. Uh, And when you deepen and mature in your life as a believer in Christ, you know what happens? The gospel is progressing. Because when you deepen and mature as a man, it makes you a better husband. It makes you a better father. And that is the gospel. It's the power of God that is changing you. And a wife cannot deny that. Kids cannot deny it when they see it happen. Co-workers cannot deny it. Interesting how God works, isn't it? So you see, there really aren't accidents. There are appointments. Paul was at Rome, and you could say, well, from Acts 21 to Acts 28, the way he got to Rome... It was a serious. See, he had his plan. It's, it's interesting. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, then I'm going to go to Rome. Don't you do this? Don't we kind of make plans in our minds? And when we make plans in, in our head, our plans are going to go smoothly. Right? Smoothly. But plans rarely go smoothly. Plans have uh, setbacks, missteps. Uh, something will happen. Uh, that we did not foresee, and uh, some kind of calamity, some kind of catastrophe, some kind of unforeseen event. Um, Those unforeseen events um, uh, were all foreseen by God and planned by God. They're unforeseen to us. They're part of the plan of God. Those are part of the appointments Our life is not full of accidents. Our life is full of appointments, divine appointments that maybe is not on my radar, but it's on God's radar to change my life, to bring me to Christ, and then afterwards, as I go through life and walk with him, to deepen me, to teach me, it prepares me. So uh, my circumstances, what has happened to me? What's happened to you in the last three, four, five years? It's always interesting when a guy tells me a story. And usually, you know, everybody here looks normal. Everybody looks together. You're on top of things. And then guys open up and start telling their story, and you go, wow. Wow. That's incredible. I had no idea. And then what's really wild is when at some point they say, you know, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. That's scriptural. David said, it was good for me that I was afflicted. I'm better for the affliction. I'm more mature. I am deeper. I am closer to Christ because of the affliction. Um, yeah. So what circumstances are in your life right now that you wish were not there? Is it possible that God could use that in your life for the greater progress of the gospel? And the answer is absolutely. Absolutely. There was another benefit that came, and it's in verse 14, of Philippians, Paul makes the statement that even though he's in prison, not only in 13, my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Now watch this, 14, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Isn't that something? Because they've seen God sustain Paul. You know, Paul would pray, and he said, pray that I might speak the gospel with boldness. See, when when persecution starts happening, what happens is we get intimidated and we get fearful. 
But what the Lord says to us is, and he's constantly saying to us, he's constantly saying, fear not. Fear not. Do not be intimidated by them. Do not be afraid of them. Timothy was, was a very fearful individual, this, this young protege of Paul's. And, and over in 2 Timothy, uh, Paul gives him a word of instruction because what's happening, you know, Paul's always in jail. Paul's getting pretty, he sees the stuff that Paul go, goes through. And, and Timothy's thinking, man, I don't want to go anything like that. And he gets fearful. And in 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul says to Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of, he's not given us a spirit of fear. He's not given us a spirit of timidity. He's not given us a spirit of cowardice but that of power and of love and of sound thinking. And that all goes together. How do you fight off fear? Uh, you fight off fear, first of all, you fight off fear by considering the love of God. What has God done for me? How much does he love me? He loves me enough that he sent his son to die in my place. That's the gospel. He, he, he loves me enough that Christ died in my place. He loves me enough that he has adopted me into his family, judicially, legally. I can never lose that status. He loves me enough that nothing can separate me from his love. Nothing. And he gives the list in Romans 8. Nothing, anything you can conjure up in your mind, nothing can separate you from the love of God, not even death. And that's why Paul deals with death, the next thing in Philippians. Uh, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but that of power of love. I skip power. The power of God. By the way, the power of God. One of, one of the ways you, you deal with fear is to think of the power of God over those that you think have power over you. So God's not giving us a spirit. And see, here's, 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 here's the process here. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but that of power the power of God. Nothing can stop the power of God. God has power over people in high places. God has power over authorities. God has authority over uh, all things. We quoted it last week, uh, Psalm 119.91. All things are thy servant. There is no stopping the power of God. So what am I afraid of? Whatever it is I'm afraid of, God has power over them God controls them. They cannot harm me be, without permission from God. They cannot afflict me without permission of God. If God grants permission, it's for my good and for my benefit. Satan could not afflict Job without permission from the Father. If the Father gives permission that I would be afflicted, it's for my good so that I might grow, that I might develop, but he puts boundaries on Satan. So what I have to focus on to fight off my fear is the power of God, the love of God. God's not giving me a spirit of fear, but that of power and love and sound thinking. I have to think clearly. What's going on here? Who's in control? See, that calms me down. That helps me. So I can move ahead. You don't have to be fearful. Well, man, if, if I... If I stand up, now it might cost me something. It, it, it's going to cost you something. The question is, well, I'm not sure how much it's going to cost me. Why don't you trust God with that? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's Job 1. Job 2, shall we accept prosperity from God and not adversity? You know you're going to get adversity. Why do we get adversity? We get adversity so that we might mature in Christ. Count it joy, there's your mind, count it joy when you encounter, not if, when you encounter various trials. Trials are a certainty in the Christian life. Okay, so if God relieves you of a trial now, praise God, enjoy the benefits, enjoy the time, enjoy the rest. But another trial's coming. Once again, I'm just here to encourage. <laughs> but you know that's true, don't you? Why? Because he's not just going to let you sit Get fat, get sassy, get lazy. No, because we're, we're in a war, we're in a battle. Count it, think it as joy when you encounter various trials, when you encounter various trials, knowing, there's the mind, knowing that the testing of your faith produces 
endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So he wants to conform me into the image of Christ. He wants to make me into a mature man. How does that happen? Through trials. Through trials. He knows what I can handle. When it's too much, he'll, he'll pull back. He'll either give you additional grace to handle it, or he'll remove it, relieve it. He'll give you a season of respite. Paul had that. He would get seasons of respite, and then it's on to the next wind sprint. You see? It's on to the next workout. Isn't this what guys, triathlon guys do? Isn't this what athletes do? They'll take a break. They'll get ready. I mean, if you're, I mean, last spring, I'm, this guy lives down the street from me. I'm, I'm driving out early, and he's out. <laughs> I roll down the window, you know. Can I give you a lift? No, I'm getting ready for the White Rock Marathon. God bless you. I'll read about it in the paper. Yeah. He was choosing pain. He was choosing suffering. He was choosing trials. Because he wanted to develop endurance. Endurance. See, uh, how much of the Christian life is fighting off fear? A huge amount. I've been out of work for X amount of time, or I can't seem to find my slot. I can't find my niche. I, I don't know where I fit, and I've been asking God, or I've been asking the Lord to do this, or I've been asking God to do this, and it just hasn't happened yet. And then we wonder, how long is this going to go on? Don't, don't try to figure that out. You'll drive yourself crazy. They looked at Paul's example. Am I going to be persecuted? Am I going to wind up like Paul? What happened was, as a result of Paul's stability in the circumstances, which by all accounts were not favorable, because of Paul's perspective that, watch this, because of Paul's perspective that God uses adversity and trials to bring gain and blessing and progress, that gave them courage to go ahead and preach without fear. Do you get that? He's, listen, they're actually writing to Paul to encourage Paul. That's why he's writing them back. They sent some kind of note. They sent kind of, some kind of gift. Oh, my gosh, Paul's in prison again. He's getting older. He's getting some miles on the tires. He must be worn out. Boy, his spirits must be sagging. They write to Paul to encourage him. He writes back, and who's encouraging who? And his example, his stability, his steadiness, his steadfastness in these circumstances gives them greater courage. They look to an older man, a godly man, and go, ah, this is how you do it. Yeah, this is how you do it. See, this is why we go through trials, because you say, well, I'm not an apostle. I don't have any kind of ministry like Paul. Well, who does? But we got our little slots, and we got our little areas that God has given to us and you see, what he wants is to develop us so that those that are following us and looking at us, it might be, might be family members, it might be young men at work, it might be, I don't know who it is, somebody's watching you. And when they see stability and steadiness and a peace and a calm, you're encouraging them as Paul encouraged them. Do you, know you know how it's going to sort out? No, and neither did Paul. Now, in the midst, in the, this is really wild. I, this, this next section to me, I love this section because it's so cotton-picking real to life. So here's Paul. Um, He's been appointed, once again, to be in prison. It's no accident. And how he got to prison, that was no accident. The starts, the steps, the stops, God's overseeing it all. By the way, by the way, you know what this reminds me of? In Ephesians 2, and I touched on that last week. In Ephesians 2, Verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, any man should boast. That's the gospel. 
Okay, so we trust in Christ. We're born again. All right. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. That's the gift of God, not as a result of works any man should boast. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Did Paul, did God have, Paul, God converted Paul so that Paul could do good works. He was saved by grace, but now that he's saved by grace, God's going to use him. Same thing in your life, same thing in my life. Now, what are the good works? We don't know, but God will lead us. He'll pull them off. Not good works to be saved, good works as a result of being saved by grace. Okay. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, before you were ever born, that you might walk in them. Okay? The word workmanship is the Greek word poema. It's where we get our word poem. What it's literally saying is that you are God's poem. And you may be thinking, really? Really? You are his poem, P-O-E-M. Well, that's really interesting, Steve, because uh, I thought poems were supposed to rhyme. But you see, if you knew what was going on in my life right now with what I'm dealing with, and not just on this front, but this front and this front, I'm going to go ahead and tell you something. I'm God's poem. That's really interesting, because as far as I can see, what's going on in my life, there is no rhyme and there is no reason. Do you ever feel that way? Absolutely you do. I don't get this, Lord. There is no rhyme and there is no reason to what is going on in my life. Where are you? I have a question for you. Does every word in a poem rhyme? The answer is no. You don't get to a rhyme until you get to the end of the line. See, as you sit here tonight, it's possible that you could be two or three words away from a rhyme and you don't know it. In your past, have you ever been confused by your circumstances and then in some remarkable providential way, God came through and suddenly made sense of it to you? Where there was no rhyme and there was no reason, suddenly you kind of saw the reason? Well, could he not do that again? Why is Paul in jail? Well, actually, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Let's see, what about us? Same thing. We're his poema. There's no rhyme, there's no reason. Actually, there is a reason. There is a reason. Maybe it hasn't been sorted out, and maybe you don't have closure yet, but there is a reason, and he will rhyme it as we saw last week, and we know, Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. He causes all things to work together for good. Even those regrets, even those missteps, even those past sins, somehow he takes all things and he's, sin is bad, which we've all done. All those screw-ups, all those foul-ups, and we know that God causes all things, all things, your greatest regret in life would be in there. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He wraps it up. He redeems it. He saves it. And he saves us. That's the greatest news in the world. That's how it works. See, that's how you get contentment in crisis. When you don't see the closure and you don't see the rhyme or the reason, you just know. You've seen him work before, and you read the scripture, and you say, he's going to work again. I don't know how, I don't know when, but it's in his timetable. Okay. One other piece we've we got to look at in Philippians, because this is, this is the part which, to me, is another part that is so real to life. Paul goes on, and he says this. Uh, you, you got brethren trusting in the Lord. Because of my encouragement, they have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Great. Now watch this. In 15, some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy or rivalry and strife, but some also from goodwill. So you've got two groups here who are preaching the gospel. 
Now, by the way, these aren't false teachers. These aren't Judaizers. These aren't counterfeit teachers. These are Christian men. But some, see, they, they've got the message of the gospel, but now he's talking about their motives. He says, some, to be sure, are preaching Christ from rivalry and strife, but some from goodwill. So you've got two groups. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. They're all for Paul. They're behind Paul. He's an apostle. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. That's interesting. That's their motive. Rather than from pure motives, watch this. Now, why would they do that? Thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. This is wild stuff. He's saying there are guys in Rome who are preaching the gospel. They're not diluting the gospel. They're not playing with the gospel. They're not editing it. They're preaching the pure, undefiled gospel of Jesus Christ. But their motives, see, what's in their heart is selfish ambition, rivalry. They're thinking to cause me distress or literally friction in my imprisonment. I'm really glad that's there. Because it doesn't take too far along in your walk with Christ for you to run into Christians who believe the gospel who are going to seriously disappoint you. See, here's what's wild to me. Paul's in crisis, you know. Yeah, Paul's in prison. Okay, crisis, sure. Uh, he's in crisis. He's in chains. See, the whole time, there are no accidents. You've got these divine appointments, and you've got the advancement of the gospel. This is all great stuff. But in the midst of all that, there's crisis. He's in chains, and he's got critics who really believe the gospel There are always immature Christians. Always. As Christians went after Paul, they're going to come after you. Um, you see, there were men there in Rome who, uh, Paul's critics, you see, they had their own ambitions. Their, their own ambitions. And there was no apostle in Rome until Paul showed up. And see, these different guys had different positions of leadership and titles and, you know, their little spheres of influence. And then suddenly Paul shows up and he's an apostle. Well, that trumps everybody. Uh, so they had their ambitions and he's getting in the way of their ambition. Uh, they had uh, their jealousies because Paul was well known. They were not well known. Um, they had their agendas. They, uh, they had their own turf, and Paul was on their turf. I will tell you this. In my life, I think the harshest attacks I've ever received have not been from unbelievers. It's been from believers. And when that happens to you, don't take it personally. Just take a step back and then ask yourself, Am I doing that to someone else? Is there anyone else that I, in, the, in, the, in the kingdom I'm a little bit jealous of them? Is there anyone else in the kingdom that uh, I wish I had the limelight like they have the limelight? Yeah, you know, in the church, uh, they, they've acknowledged these people and these people, but they didn't acknowledge me. See, I've had that happen to me, but undoubtedly, I've done it to others. It happens because there are different levels of maturity. Uh, you know what's interesting to me is Paul's response to this. you got two groups preaching the gospel. Some do it out of envy, rivalry, strife, some from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. 
The former proclaimed Christ had a selfish ambition rather than pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. They wanted to hurt Paul while he was in prison, and they were Christians. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense, whether in contention or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. You know why? Because Paul cared about the advancement of the gospel. You don't like me? Fine. Are you preaching Christ? God bless you. And I rejoice. <laughs> because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Hey, we're all flawed. We're all broken. We all have mixed motives. And Christ takes our hearts, and amazingly, he uses us all. R.C. Sproul tells the story, in fact, he told the story about, was it John Gerstner, who was a professor? I think Sproul was in a class with this professor, John Gerstner, and uh, they had a test, and a young man, you know, they're passing out the, the, the results of the test, and guys are reading their scores. And uh, this one seminary student got upset with Professor Gerstner. And, uh, and Gerstner basically said, you didn't study hard enough. And, and the young man said, I did, I did, I did. Gershner said, well, I'm sorry, that's your grade. And the young man said, I worked as hard as I could with pure motives. And Gershner said, you've never worked as hard as you could with pure motives. And you never will. Words to that effect. Why? Because we're all sinners. We're all sinners. But Christ died for us and he uses us. Is that not amazing? And how does he use us? And how does he mature us? Through hardships and trials and disappointments. But that's not the end of the story. And because it's not the end of the story, we can rejoice. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. That the gospel is advancing, the gospel is increasing. Uh, thank you, Lord, that as we're teachable and open to learning from our adversities, we're growing and we're increasing as well. It's not what we like, but it's what we need. Help us to check our attitudes and our spirits and bring them in submission to your will. We would pray for each and every man in this room. In Jesus' name, amen.